Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. David Betty is a writer from Georgetown. He is a member of the Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau, and we're going to talk to him about uh, some of the work that he does uh, for Kentucky Humanities. Uh, formerly, he was at the University of Kentucky, uh, where he uh, received a Ph.D., and he uh, also, also a graduate of uh, Notre Dame and uh, now, is a, as I said, a resident uh, in Georgetown. His work includes Kentucky and the Great War, World War I on the home front, uh, and his presentation includes uh, a talk on, um, if you request him to do so, on a Kentucky Marine, Major General Logan Phelan, and the making of the modern USMC, United States Marine Corps. So we'll talk about both those. Uh, David, welcome uh, to uh, our Think Humanities podcast. Um, do you miss um, the history uh, PhD that you received, uh, or have you used uh, what you learned at the University of Kentucky uh, in your uh, life away from uh, the university to do what you're doing now for uh, our Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau? Uh, while I didn't uh, go directly into history and writing, um, after I got my PhD, I certainly uh, valued the skills I learned getting a PhD at at UK, uh, skills like learning how to read and write and uh, analyze and so forth, and those those worked for me uh, in my uh, career. And your uh, thought process about uh, these two pieces, and we'll talk about them, uh, and I think it needs to be said too that when you're contacted by someone uh, to uh, speak on either one, you I'm sure don't do both of them at the same time before a group, but when did you, let, let's just break them down, if you will. Uh, tell us a little bit about the work, uh, how you uh, became interested in doing what you've done here uh, on uh, the Great War, World War I, um, and, and what that means. I, I found it really intriguing with some of the uh, areas that we're going to cover and talk about that you talk about in, in your talk. So how did you become sort of uh, interested in World War I instead of one of the other World War? Um, the interest in World War I goes back to my undergraduate days at, at Notre Dame. Um, previously, I had, as a child, uh, been interested in the Civil War, the Civil War Centennial uh, it started when I was eight, and so I was very interested in the Civil War, and then, of course, was interested in Vietnam. But it was in uh, undergraduate school. I ended up reading uh, the same book about World War I, uh, Alistair Horne's uh, Price of Glory, Verdun, 1916, for a couple of classes, at least two classes that I could think of. And that uh, uh, spurred an interest in World War I. I ended up doing my senior thesis on a World War I character, um, T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, and a biography as, as history uh, senior uh, seminar. Mm -hmm. And so I, uh, then I came to UK uh, to uh, study uh, basically European diplomatic history post-1848. Uh, and when you do that, you get a big dose of World War One and the causes of World War One. So, you know, I read a lot of material about the causes of World War One and about the war itself. Um, so then when I was uh, thinking about retirement, uh, uh, oddly enough, I, I uh, stumbled across this Kentuckian, uh, Logan Phelan, 
uh, from Hopkinsville, who was a major player, major character in the Marine Corps in the first three decades of the 20th century. And um, uh, he would, the Logan Phelan was actually a, a hero at the uh, I, sort of iconic Marine Corps battle, Bella Wood, mm. uh, which happened, uh, well, they just celebrated the June 6th anniversary of it. And, um, and so uh, that kept me in the World War I uh, realm, you know, uh, I wrote about him in World War I and his career afterwards. Um, he had a, a pretty uh, meteoric rise as a result of his actions in World War I, uh, commanding the uh, Marine Corps' 5th Regiment, one of two Marine Corps regiments that were involved in direct fighting in the war. And then in, as I was finishing that project in 2014, of course, uh, lots of material was coming out about the cause of the war again. You know, people were writing all kinds of books about World War I with the centennial. And so um, I started reading some of that material, and then I read a book by a fellow named David Kennedy, a book called Over Here, which looked at the domestic side of the war, which, you know, very few people do. And um, I read another book by Chris Capazzola up at MIT uh, called uh, Uncle Sam Wants You. Um, and again, you know, talking about the domestic side of the war, I got to thinking, well, you know, what was happening in Kentucky uh, during the war? What, what transformations occurred as a result of the war in Kentucky? And so that's kind of the long story of how I have been interested in World War I for a while and did two projects with World War I sort of as a colonel. So as, um, as your research um, showed you, I'm sure, there were these two uh, works that you talked about. But to your knowledge, and there might have been something done by another writer, another author at some time uh, in Kentucky, but uh, you decided there was enough material uh, on the effects of World War I uh, on Kentucky or what was happening in Kentucky, what our contribution was, uh, what was going on here domestically uh, while uh, troops were uh, in, in another part of the world. Yeah, I, uh, of course, w uh, read the section in Jim Clotter's book about uh, Kentucky from 1900-1950, and Jim covered it. And, um, but I kept uh, discovering lots of material. And I eventually actually had a conversation with Jim about writing a book about World War I. And um, there was enough material uh, to... Um, hammer out quite a, actually a long book about <laughs> what what the war did f for Kentucky in a sense yeah and for Kentuckians and yeah. for citizens and, and you yeah. uh, in our uh, description of the work that uh, you are able to do for audiences today all across uh, the Commonwealth uh, covering initial reactions to the war especially as they affected the many Kentuckians of German heritage which is an interesting uh, area we'll talk about um, and, and talks about a few other things that we'll also mention, but uh, the initial reactions to the war, what, what, uh, what was that like? And also, at that time, uh, how many uh, German uh, descendants did we have uh, here, and, and what were their conflicted thoughts about, um, about the United States entering into a conflict against Germany? Well, I think like everyone else, uh people were surprised about the war. I mean, Europeans were surprised about the war. The, the, the European uh, great powers sort of went stumbling into the war, uh, what a uh, British historian calls, uh, you know, sleepwalking into the war. And so it was, uh, you know, a surprise to Kentuckians. 
uh, if any, uh, if anything, uh, war with Mexico was more likelihood for uh, the United States. You know, the uh, United States had invaded Mexico in April of, of 1914. Um, and so the, the response to the war was, uh, well, to the assassination of, of Franz Ferdinand and his wife was, you know, it was covered in the major newspapers, but, you know, the local newspapers didn't didn't have much about that. Um, when the war broke out in August uh, 1914, uh, there were some Kentuckians who actually uh, were caught abroad. Uh, the uh, uh, Bishop of Covington and, and one of the priests were caught uh, in Belgium and German, respectively. Um, the, uh, there were some politicians, uh, uh, families who were caught abroad. I, if I recall, it was Ben Johnson's daughter was caught abroad in Italy uh, at the outset of the war. Um, and so, you know, there was consternation uh, reflected in newspapers about uh, getting those people back. Sometimes it took as much as a month to get them out of the war zone and back to Kentucky. Some Kentuckians who went uh, to the sound of the guns. Uh, probably the most famous was Irvin Cobb, who had just gone to New York to become a, you know, a correspondent up there. Uh, he went abroad uh, quite quickly and wrote for the, the articles that were published in the Saturday Evening Post and were reprinted in like uh, the Louisville Curry journals. Uh, Irvin Cobb from Paducah. Right, yeah. And so uh, there were others. Uh, there was a, a young man from uh, uh, Lexington, Fayette County, uh, named Alexander McClintock, who joined the Canadian Army and uh, went through some really severe fighting in uh, 1916, was uh, uh, wounded, uh, and was uh, eventually uh, presented uh, Britain's second highest uh, medal of valor by the king. Why the Canadian Army? Because uh, it was easy, I think, for Americans to do, to go and join it. Uh, easier to just go up there and join, even though you really weren't supposed to. Uh, after all, America was supposed to be neutral in all ways. And, but, uh, you know, there were several thousand Americans who, who joined the Canadian Army to fight. You also um, uh, talk about the um, uh, the draft, uh, uh, the impact of the uh, the new camp Zachary Taylor, uh, which was uh, uh, south of Louisville and and uh, is um, is thought of at that time. Um, and uh, one other sentence that we add is that everyone was expected to support the war. That became very clear. Uh, in all the research. I mean, really, from uh, small children up to, you know, older adults, uh, everyone was really expected in some way uh, to support the war. Either um, you were going to be drafted or uh, you're going to work in the fields or in the industry that was supported the war. Uh, you would do things like uh, help conserve food, fuel, um, you would join uh, local organizations that supported the Red Cross and, and other groups. Who expected um, uh, citizens to do this? I mean, obviously the government, but was there, uh, was there an edict? Were there speeches by the president? How did, the, how did this filter down? It filtered down primarily from, um, there was a, established before the war, a, a committee of national defense 
which was worried about uh, America's unpreparedness for the war. You know, it was part of this preparedness movement before the war, people arguing, people like uh, Teddy Roosevelt arguing, that, hey, you know, we need to be more prepared for, for conflict. Uh, with, uh, Germany, uh, Mexico, even Japan. And he uh, obviously didn't think we were prepared. We, and we weren't. We weren't. <laughs> we were terribly unprepared uh-huh. uh, in many respects. So we have this Council on National Defense that's formed by Wilson in, uh, I guess, in uh, 1916 to look at the economic preparations for war. And then after the United States actually joined the war in April of, of uh, uh, 1917, each state uh, created a, a Council of Defense. So there was a Kentucky Council of Defense, and it was fed material primarily through George Creel's Committee of Public Information about the war, basically propaganda about the war. And then the Kentucky Council of Defense would pass these down to all the local, they were all local counties of uh, defense. And these were even broken up into sub-districts based on school districts. And so the message was coming down from the top uh, through the states and then through the you know your local council to participate in war. What was the uh, what was the nature of some of the propaganda? Oh, uh, there was uh, talk about you know you know registering for the draft and so forth. Um, uh, there was uh, propaganda about uh, supporting. Um, well, just supporting the, the Allied war effort in general. You know, the, the propaganda was aimed against the Germans, the, the so-called Huns, which, of course, you know, uh, involved, uh, you know, offending about the 25% of Kentuckians who were German-American heritage. Yeah, and their reaction, obviously, was not good. The, the reaction at first, you know, when the war first broke out was, um, you know, there was some support for Germany. Um, there was some support to stay neutral, primarily, I think, to stay neutral. Um, when the United States actually entered the war, uh, German-Americans pretty much rallied to the cause. Um, there wasn't a great deal of, of opposition to the war in Kentucky. Uh, there was some. There was one notable case of, by a, a Baptist minister down in Murray. Um, but on the whole, Kentuckians supported the war, including uh, German-Americans. You know, they, they signed up for the draft. They supported Liberty Bonds. There was uh, some anti-German sentiment, particularly in northern Kentucky. Uh, some uh, locals formed a, uh, what's it called, Citizens Protective League, which went around badgering Germans into uh, uh, supporting the Red Cross and so forth. Uh, they, there was one notorious case where the, the CPL got a, um, a preacher coming over from uh, from Cincinnati, and they took him out, and they didn't tar and feather him. They oiled and feathered him uh, for being so-called pro-German, huh. um, which made the national news. That actually made the New York Times and, and the American Civil Liberties Board <laughs> report for the year. What was the role of African Americans um, in Kentucky at the time? African-Americans, of course, faced a dilemma. Uh, you could uh, support the war uh, and what was hoped to be a, uh, an effort to make the world safer democracy, and yet African-Americans didn't exactly have democracy in all the full rights in the United States in uh, 1917. But there was a, a, an African-American um, journalist down in Louisville uh, 
who uh, quickly accepted that African Americans should play an important part in the role. And he went around central Kentucky making speeches, trying to get African Americans to, to support the war effort. Uh, he later went on to a, uh, a national tour, actually. So he, he was pretty... Um, well, what was his name? Uh, Roscoe Conkling Simmons. And he wrote for uh, the uh, African American newspaper uh, based out of Chicago. Made a name for himself. He did, and apparently was quite an astounding speaker. Uh, he would appear to crowds that were uh, both uh, uh, white and black. And um, but uh, you know, is he recognized today in any way? Um, probably no, not. No so relation much. to Simmons uh, College uh, in Louisville, is there? I don't think there is. but yeah. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, uh, African Americans, of course, were subject to the draft like everybody else, and uh, most of them in Kentucky ended up going through Camp Taylor, which was a uh, a camp that did have a large uh, amount of African Americans coming through. Um, and so they they participated. There was a fellow um, down in um, Hopkinsville, a black uh, newspaper editor, who um, actually helped to support the um, the food effort. You know, saving food and, and producing more food in Kentucky. He, how did he do that? Did he do that just from his his writing or his editorials? He did, and uh, actually formed network. You know, World War One support in Kentucky was all about forming networks to uh, to promote the, the you know things like you know buying savings bonds and supporting the Red Cross and so forth. So, so uh, it was uh, in essence a, a segregated effort, quite frankly, and he recognized that. Um, but, you know, again, there was a group of African-Americans who thought that, that, you know, by supporting the United States in the war, that they would gain from it. And, of course, they really didn't. Uh, it would take another war and then a, basically a civil rights war to, for them and, to achieve and, it. And still the struggle today. Right, uh, yeah. Yes, there's a, I just uh, finished um, an... Uh, a conversation with and, and reading uh, 1919 by Anne Hagedorn. I don't know if you've read that or no, not, but, not. Yeah. but she makes that strong point that a lot of people thought that after the war effort uh, in that particular year, it was going to be a turning point in many respects uh, for the nation and for African-Americans uh, coming out of the war. And, and it, it was not no. I uh, in the uh, chapter on African Americans with an unfortunate incident in which a uh, an African American soldier was traveling through Western Kentucky, and uh, was headed home to Alabama and uh, uh, became involved in a a, a fracas down in Western Kentucky, Benton County, I think, and uh, was uh, taken out and uh, hanged in his soldier's uniform. So uh, that showed just how much more that that needed to be done. Yeah, that was, uh, so what What year was that, uh, approximately? I mean, it was That was, a, I believe, in either, November, I think it was in December, it was right after the war, uh-huh. after the armistice. So, I mean, he had been discharged and was on his way home. Yeah, how sad. Yeah. Um, finally, on this uh, uh, particular topic, how was Kentucky different from uh, surrounding states in the way they reacted to the war? Kentuckians supported the war more than some of the southern states. There was a, a great deal of opposition in southern states to the war. Um, this was best reflected in Jeanette Keith's book, uh, Rich Man's War, Poor Man's Fight. There were certain southern politicians 
who uh, mainly are, you know, agrarianist, who thought that uh, the United States should not be involved in a war, uh, that this was a war uh, brought about by uh, Northeast bankers uh, and munitions makers. And so um, there was a great deal of opposition. Even after the United States became involved in war, there were um, draft dodgers and, and uh, so forth, uh, and gangs in, in the South. Uh, federal troops actually had to be brought into four of the uh, southern states to break up these groups and track people down. That didn't happen in Kentucky. The um, Kentucky congressional delegation was very... Uh, pro-Wilson. Uh, uh, there was a, uh, uh, a legislator from, from Louisville uh, who strongly supported Wilson. Um, the draft as a whole was conducted fairly well in Kentucky. There was a little bit of resistance uh, maybe in eastern Kentucky, but uh, if there was any draft dodging there, a lot of that was just due to the lack of communication. So Kentucky, uh, Kentuckians uh, did differ from particularly their southern counterparts in that they really did strongly support the war. You, uh, as you spelled out to us uh, earlier, uh, were quite taken with, uh, with Logan Phelan, one of these uh, uh, nationally known um, heroes. Uh, and uh, did you just happen to stumble on him in, in your research, or did you know of him before you, you began this project? I, I knew of Logan Field. I did the Logan Phelan project first, and it was, it was when I was finishing that up that I, then I turned to Kentucky in World War I. Uh, the Logan Phelan uh, project uh, was an accident. I was uh, thinking about retiring, and uh, was invited up to a... a uh, a seminar up at the National War College, the Army War College up in uh, Carlisle. I thought I'd do some research up there on, on maybe a Kentuckian in the Civil War. Um, didn't get to do that. We were busy th that week. And so um, one evening in the fall of, uh, I guess it was, uh, uh, what, 27? Yeah, 2007. Um, I was Googling, and I Googled Kentucky Marine. And Logan Phelan's Arlington National Cemetery website came up. And I read about this guy, and he'd done some pretty impressive things. He joined the Marine Corps in 1899, was, did all these expeditions. The World War I hero commanded uh, Marines in uh, Nicaragua against Augusto Sandino in the 27 through 29. And I thought, well, you know, I'd like to read something about this guy. But, of course, there was no book about him. There was very little about him, actually. <laughs> And so that began a quest. Uh, January uh, 2008, I went up to Quantico to look at the little bit of material they had up at the Marine Corps archives up there about Phelan. And, um, you know, became actually fascinating. I was able, luckily, to track down enough material by using particularly the Internet uh, to uh, hammer out a book, much to the surprise of the um, director of the Marine Corps Archives, who knew how little they had. Well, I was <laughs> going to say, did there. you find much in, in Washington when, when you made that trip? And I didn't find a whole lot in Washington. <laughs> um, some, there was some uh, material at the National Archives uh, downtown Washington, where the Marine Corps, old Marine Corps records are held. There was a little bit at Quantico. Um, there was some material... Um, Phelan corresponded with his former commander, who was actually an Army general and then uh, head of RCA. He corresponded with him all th uh, after the war. 
And uh, so there's some material in New York Historical Society and, and a few other places. Tell me a little bit about uh, his early life uh, and um, what you found about that. Okay. He um, grew up in Hopkinsville. He was born in, in 1869, the son of a, um, a, uh, a Union cavalry officer and uh, a staunch Republican. Uh, he went to school uh, taught by a former Confederate major, uh, Major Farrell, who had a boys' school there in Hopkinsville. Phelan joined the um, state militia, the state guard, at the age of 16, following in the footsteps of his brother. Um, he then went off uh, eventually to uh, military school very briefly up in New York, St. John's, before going on to MIT, where he got an architecture degree. Um, he came back to, to Kentucky. That was, uh, let's see, 1890 through 93. He came back to Kentucky to practice uh, uh, architecture in Owensboro, where his father had uh, received a political patronage appointment from the Republicans. And um, Phelan in Owensboro, uh, while as an architect, helped them create uh, the Owensboro uh, Company of the Kentucky Militia. And then he went off to, to New York in, uh, well, I guess, uh, 97. Uh, to work for a, a college roommate in his construction firm with proviso that if the United States went to war with, with Spain, that he would come back and command the uh, Kentucky, uh, the Owensboro Company of the Militia, which he did. Yeah. And they ended up serving in Cuba after, you know, basically after the war was ended in January of 1899. How old would he been at this point? Uh, early uh, 20s? Uh, he was 30. Oh, he was yeah. 30. Okay, older than And from that... Uh, he decided a career in the military and, in fact, was accepted to be a, a U.S. volunteer, uh, you know, in the Philippines, but then apparently got the highest score in the Marine Corps exam and joined the Marine Corps and had a 33-year career in the Marine Corps. Yeah. It went on to some uh, a distinguished military career. Absolutely. He was um, supposedly the, the Marine Corps' uh, most decorated soldier in or soldier in in uh, World War One. Um, he almost became commandant in in 1930. Just narrowly lost out to a, uh, actually a naval academy graduate, uh-huh. uh, which was the trend at the time. Um, so he had, yeah, and he was he was known Kentucky. He he uh, was the guest of honor at the. Uh, uh, Armistice Day celebration in Louisville in 1922. He's got his picture there in the front page of the of the Louisville Courier Journal. Do, do you know much, uh, or were you ever in contact with his family? Did he did he have a family that remained here? After the book was published, and as I was getting ready to go down to the Philston Historical Society to give, to give a talk, uh, his great niece contacted me. He has three great nieces. He he and his wife never had any children. But he had a sister who was the postmaster up in up in uh, in Owensboro, and uh, uh, anyway, uh, one of the great nieces uh, contacted me, and so I've been. In- Are they still in Kentucky? Uh, she is uh, just living outside of Bowling Green, and apparently has two sisters. So. Did, uh, is there any uh, memorabilia or family uh, hand-me-downs that that you? Basically, no. All they have left is a. Uh, apparently, in the basement, they have a a uh, sort of a coffee table made out of uh, 
some wood from a crate that uh, Phelan had sent back from from uh, Nicaragua. Yeah. Apparently, very nice, probably oh, mahogany or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. But no, not, they have not come up with any new did, resources. Did, did the great niece know of of what her uncle uh, had done? Had been? They had an idea. But I think my book might have filled in a lot oh. of gaps. Well, how nice. <laughs> yeah. How nice of you to do that for them <laughs> and for us, too. Uh, David Betty, uh, who is uh, a writer, mm-hmm. and uh, are you working on anything currently? Well, I just turned in something to the Marine Corps History Division. They have uh, commissioned a series of monographs, short monographs, about uh, various aspects of Marine Corps participation in World War One, And so I just finished uh, the monograph on the... Uh, it's the last stage of the Meuse-Argonne campaign, which mm. was, you know, America's biggest battle. Yeah. Lasted, what, 47 days from the end of September to November 11th. Mm-hmm. So the Marines uh, were involved in, a, in an earlier battle in October. Uh, that's being written by somebody else. And then I pick up the story from November 1st until the end of the war on November 11th. How do you define monograph? I just think of it as a, as a shorter piece, probably about 70 or 80 pages. I see. So, so, almost like an essay. Um, well, almost like my senior thesis, oh, about okay. the same size as yeah. my senior thesis. Yeah. yeah. Well, David Betty, again, thanks uh, for uh, joining me on Think Humanities. Uh, David is uh, available for uh, conversation and uh, appearances all across the state of Kentucky. Uh, I would imagine with this... Uh, uh, this monograph that you've turned in, uh, you might, uh, we, we should uh, add that to your, <laughs> to your uh, talk that you are, are listed to give uh, for us. So uh, thanks for being here, and we look forward to working with you in the future. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities and is a production of the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences. This podcast was created at the Media Depot. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. SoundCloud.